Hello, everybody, and welcome to Gordon Baird Podcast Gloucester up at Cape Ann Regional TV. Now, there are many people that I have met in the music business throughout my career. As founder of Musician Magazine, I guess I go back a ways to the (laughs) dinosaur-ridden 70s. And as the 70s was ending, I met a gentleman in the earliest days of Musician Magazine's creation who came in to uh, answer an ad for an interview. And I ended up meeting one of the most influential people on me that I've ever met, a gentleman (laughs) named Paul... Saxman. And you haven't heard of Paul because Paul is a very behind-the-scenes driven, intelligent, motivated person. So I have here Paul today, and I figure we talk a little bit about the past and a little bit about the present and even a little bit about the future. Hi, Paul. Hey, Gordon. How are you? (laughs) All right. How is everything? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I don't know about the history of it all, uh, but I'm, uh, I graduated Boston University. Let's start there. And I graduated in 1979, and uh, I was a long-haired rock and roll guy with a college education, like many, and they're trying to figure out where to go. And I had a mentor in school who told me that health services was the future. HMOs were starting up. They're going to need communication specialists. So I don't know how to get a job like that. So I and looked in the Boston Globe as a BU student graduate. And there was an ad under Hospital Help Wanted that said, Music Magazine, looking for salesmen, call Gordon. Hospital Help. Hospital For help. the mentally ill. Or, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I figured this is either fate or if it's... Yeah, uh, you got to be gotta, sick to work here. i got to yeah. give it a shot. Yeah. And I called and a woman with a Cockney accent answers the phone. I'm going, oh my God. This is like surreal, you know? <laughs> Where am I calling? What, what is this? And um, I was fortunate enough that she was seemed to be as taken, as she has told me that now, she was as taken by my voice as I was taken by hers. And she walked into Gordon's office and said, there's a guy on the phone answering the ad, you gotta talk to him. <laughs> I remember that day, and in fact, uh, today here in the cable station, they're moving furniture for all this new furniture. <laughs> as I recall that day, that furniture was missing from some of the rooms and that we were expecting a it was sparse I it, it was definitely sparse yeah. um, so I walked into a very you know um, almost suburban like office you were at 42 Roger Street yes on the fourth floor on yeah. the fourth floor of the walk up and I'm going okay this kind of looks like uh, you know um, a value coupon office right. or something. The Andrews plumbing building I might add and above a chiropractor, if yes, I remember correctly. That's right. And I walk in and I meet Gordon and we're talking and I show him my BU resume and it says I worked on the traffic control problems of Boston and whatever other student project I might have put on there back then. And Gordon, I remember, was asking me, I think you asked me, what was I proficient at? Which I thought was a very interesting good question. question. It yeah. was a really good yeah. question. So off we went, and we and we had a pleasant conversation. And you know, I I, to, I, did, I declared my love of music. I'm, and I believe what I told you was I, I realized my resume was so silly that I just wanted to let you know that I'm educable. That's, <laughs> That's what right. I said. I said I'm an educable guy. The first teach, time I heard that word. <laughs> teach, teach me something. Well, what you taught me too was when you say you were educated at BU. That was only part part of the story because Paul has a collection of. I'm going to just guess low and say 100,000 uh, albums. No, that's high. 
Okay, 199. I'm humbled. All right, but they are the real thing. They are the original records. They're all in pristine condition. He has them absolutely filed down so that if you want to ask him the fourth album from the band split of, uh, you know, ELO in the 80s, Paul, go right to it and pull it out of the amazing. I'm not a record nerd. You know, I wasn't one of those guys, but I I was fortunate. I, I loved buying music. I loved music. And then, of course, being once you're in the business, as everyone knows, the thing that you have great access to is the product that's it back in yeah. the day it was like water yeah. I would go to uh, have dinner to a dinner party and bring 25 albums as a gift <laughs> because there was that much re- many records yeah. coming into right. the uh, to the office so, well then and later on yeah they were all free and they so, were, so yeah. let me tell you I have to finish my story so Gordon says okay so I said I'm educable I'd really like to work here I think I, I'm your man <laughs> and the job was to open up retail uh, consignment so either record stores or music instrument stores was where we had to we felt we reach the musician marketplace so you know I figured banging phones and uh, I had done some work at Time Life I think I stressed that in my I I did I sold Civil War books at dinner time you know um, and plumbing basic plumbing I did basic plumbing was my strong title I know that book everybody does we were very prolific you were really good yeah so uh, so you wanted me to meet your partner and I met Sam Holsworth, who was the art director at the time and co-publisher. And he looked, we talked very short period. Came out of the back room. But the question I remember he asked me that stuck with me was, what was my sign? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, why, are you going to hire me? Are you going to, <laughs> are you going to sleep you with me? Are you going to date me? Are you going to sleep yeah, with right. me? I mean, what's going on? And uh, so I mentioned Aries. And from what I understand, which was a truthful answer, that was not the best answer uh-huh. I could have given Sam from what I understand. Yeah, but went, oh. <laughs> well, he's Gemini, so of course he had a as, mix. As is my wife. Yeah, I married right, both, yeah. Okay. So, oh, I, you got along with them I both. Did. Well, I want to just go back and say um, that that day, and in that general time period, the music industry was such a top-down industry. And it was really controlled by, well, we hadn't gotten to just the six majors yet. There were probably ten major record mm-hmm. companies mm-hmm. back then that mm-hmm. hadn't merged. And it was the old world where bands would just try to make it by getting signed by a record company. And everything was involved with the company saying yes, and then it was all up to them how they well, could market Well, the gatekeeping, it. you know, obviously the internet became the Wild West, yeah. and uh, all, um, all the uh, barriers were down. All you, the you rules. You could reach a world yeah. audience. Well, I want to just finish audience. the description yeah. of the old world, sure. because in that world, the record retailers were king, and that... The manufacturers, well, they were a parallel universe uh, king because the bands had to go through the record company's power, power, yes. But when you went to the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of the industry, you realize it was the mattress biz. It was, you'd go to the conventions, and it was like selling mattresses. These guys didn't know the difference between Stevie Wonder and Stevie Ray Vaughan. I get it. No question about it. And I get the best description really was that it was, um, uh, it was the only way to reach the consumer. There was no exactly. other way. There was no other way. And remember, the, the retailers, they, they called it product. 
True. It was no, not material, not software, a product. To them, it was how, what kind of product? And if you remember, the yeah. artist community always took great offense at the term product. At the term product, but that's product. what it was. Yeah. And then, of course, all the stuff that was support that, like politics today in the election, it was all payouts, it was all tickets, it was all payola. Well, payola became I mean, the most, and that was radio. We had Who the was, 50s, the 80s. The and radio <laughs> was the other gatekeeper that was incredibly powerful. Right. Incredible. Incredibly powerful. Yeah. And when we joined Billboard, because Musician got bought by Billboard in 1980, and here we became became part of this, oh, the legend of Billboard, now the science of how they make the choices. And to, to continue the theme, the power, the most powerful, you know, in trade, they were the power of the That's press. That's right, Billboard was. And that totally. was another gatekeeper, and right. it was an interesting relationship of the record labels to Billboard. And it showed you the, the, uh, the what shall I say, the hazards, because the only way Billboard got its information was they had callers, reporters. They would call up the chain and say, What's selling? Okay. Exactly. Now, the guy on the other end, if I gave him some tickets, some cocaine, some girls, whatever, he might say Michael Jackson when Sting was the number one seller. If, so, you, if you gave him all those three things, he would say whatever the hell you wanted. Whatever you wanted. And it was an ongoing thing because it was every week. I remember when we were part of Billboard. This, uh, we're not to this part of the story yet, but I do remember that we had been told that, uh, what was it? Uh, the president of CBS, Walter Yetnikoff, he was so angry that the police were going to dethrone Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson yeah. that he basically called up Billboard and said, I'm pulling all my ads for the rest of the year. If you don't keep Michael Jackson in that position one more week, and they did. Now, that's that's the interesting part. So Billboard's face was, well, do we stand our yeah. ground and, and claim that we have fact and we're due promoting yeah. it? The unfortunate part was it wasn't fact. It wasn't fact. It right. was all So reporting. it's a difficult yeah. argument to defend when you realize you've blown up the, these yeah. numbers. And the first payola scandal was about getting the uh, retailers to fudge. But the next one, as you started to say, was radio. Well, radio was bigger. I don't I don't remember really the scandal of uh, physical distribution as far as... Well, the, that was the in the 50s. Yeah. That was all back in the 50s no and question, 60s, because right? What the happened first was, one. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting because, again, jumping around, but we're probably closer to that now than we were because it was nothing but a singles game. That's right. And that's all that's happening now that's is right. a singles game. You know, the, the Adele album is a, you know, the big selling CD or physical product is such a rarity at this yeah, point. Yeah, it totally such a rarity. is. Through a major. Through anybody. Yeah, through exactly. Anybody. Nobody yeah. really wants yeah. it. I mean, you know, you can't even get a CD drive in your in your computer. And the 80s scandal of payola, because that's how it came to the fore. What was that wonderful book that Hitman yeah. Remember Hitman? And that totally book. described the thing. It was really well done. You know, it, it's another caper. You know, it's yeah. truly a large crime story yeah. that, uh, that permeated an industry that influenced it. And what was fascinating was what the, 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 the quick end of that story was because the guys and gals who were between the record labels and the uh, radio stations, they were on salary to start, but then scrutiny. So they became independents, independent right. radio promoters right. became Remember the that? dirtiest yes. game in the business. Right. These kids, guys and gals were paid fortunes. And they had no loyalty to and anyone. The, yeah. yeah and, the most, the, and the most important part of it was it wasn't that they could get you played, although they could. They could get you not played. That's right. They had the power to get records stopped. That's right. Incredible. Yeah. You know, well, we all incredible. know that the thing, we had a wonderful breakfast the other day, and a friend of ours came up who was a Warner Brothers financial executive. I'm hoping to get him on the podcast myself. And he was telling us stories 
about part two, what you said about not getting it played. Remember, they would be, Uh uh, Russ Sullivan tries to open his store in Boston, and suddenly all the escalator permits disappear, and he can't do it, and then the threats go out, the bribes go out, and this goes out, suddenly all the permits appear, and the other store's permits disappear. (laughs) And we're going, is that really happening? You know, there was a lot, again, these guys were, you know, titans of their industry. Yeah. And uh, and the biggest retail brands at the time, and again, to try to bring it, to go back and forth, um, it's amazing that those brands like Tower don't exist today and are not even part of the digital Unbelievable. world. Unbelievable. And we think of a record world. It was a <laughs> chain in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. I don't know, what you're thinking, uh, record world or? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Hastings, no. uh, uh, Not Hastings. Um, music Land. Music I'm Land. sorry, Me- record world was Which 200 stores. Sam Goody. Yes, yes, this thing was more like 400 stores and, and they were all mall stores and they weren't stores you'd go they in like the a, size of Target exactly. for music exactly nothing but product yeah nothing and it was record. and if you went in and said we're so and so say well, they go I don't know you know it was like a mattress store yeah I mean you it know? was a cool job I, had, I did record I, I worked at a place called Music City in Boston I remember it well Music City in Kenmore Square yeah. and it wasn't a glamorous job racking records but that was in Indy wasn't it that well, was they had about chain. four. They ah. had about three or four in okay. the Boston area back in the seventies. Right. Yeah, I was so thrilled to have that job. It was a cool job. It yeah. paid nothing. It was a, <laughs> but you know, good looking yeah. girls came in, rock bands came in, and again, if you're not going to get paid, at least get something from the job. Um, and it was an exposure. And you know, my dad uh, worked for a retailer, and they had a record department in their store. And so as a kid, he brought me Billboard every week the, when it was over. He brought me the day it yeah, expired. After, yeah. So I really did read Billboard as a teenager. You know what's amazing is back then, Billboard was one of the few trade magazines that really did influence how the record sold. Because if they gave you the chart and they said, here's number one through 10, that's what the retailers would push. Well, they highlighted. So it was a double-edged sword. It was two, and they got their info from the retailers, but they also gave the info to the retailers, which allowed them, because you'd go in the store and they'd say, here's the top Sure. 10 sellers of the week and they push it all to the front so Joe Public might go right for the Donna Summer album because there it was when you walked well, in the you door. Know, being in record retail, especially for an indie band, smaller bands, it was nothing but a, a right, uh, um, a, a, something to be proud about, but you weren't selling anything. No. You probably got more CDs back in return than you gave Ever? the retailer. Yeah. If you allocated 10 copies to them, they'll put back affidavit, not physical, affidavit. We, we Here's 11 back. You know, <laughs> you can't right. do it, but to be to have your record, if you were Sam, uh, Sam and the Boys, you know, okay. in a band, and you were next to Santana, you were there. That that was what it was all about. It was helpful. It was being yeah. in that company, being in that. Uh, so that's what drove a lot of the bands, you know. Yeah. Um, but yes, and most important, the time you're talking about is pre-CD. It's just album. Yeah. And cassette. Yeah. That's what was happening. Well, at that's that time. exactly right. CD. We were there during the CD revolution when the labels got together at NARM yeah. and said, the consortium were led by Polygram, if I'm not mistaken, that we're going to all work together to establish this format. Mm-hmm. And they even declared right. that they would do it in three years. Yes, remember. And they did it in And less. they banded together. They did. They it were all the together. first yeah. time that I ever remember yeah. that all the majors decided on a single format because format wars, you know, beta right. versus VHS, yeah. uh, mini disc versus, yeah, you know, yeah. 8-track cassette. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they are all pushing different. <laughs> yes. So they have to find a common format. And the CD revolution became, it made the cover of Time magazine. Mm-hmm. 
And it was the first time that all those major labels said, we're going to do this. They found a way to make it more expensive than they were getting for records. Totally. They, they got $15, $16 for CDs. And they didn't have to give the artist any more than the original $26. Because they were still under contract. Yeah, it was exactly. the same. They hadn't invented <laughs> technology yet, so there was nothing well, covered. You know, it's so crazy today that I think when digital distribution became the norm, there was still packaging deductions from every contract. There's, they're not packaging anything. They're not making yeah. product. They're just yeah. sending out a CD, um, sending out a digital well, it just shows you, though, the way the music industry worked was they didn't know any more than we did. They were sort of throwing up all this stuff to see what would stick, even the majors. You mean as far as artist by artist? Yes, oh, in the very absolutely. beginning especially. By the way, the first time I started buying records, I went to EJ Corvettes, and you would buy Beatle albums for two fifty nine. They used to have the old label sales at Corvettes. Yeah. I loved Corvettes. Yeah. And it was labeled C, D, E. That was the That's category. Right. That was of price. And you'd yeah. look up on the board, oh, oh they're all $1.99 yes. today? That's right, yeah. And absolutely. yet you'd go to other places, it'd be nine bucks. For, so yeah, I, I mean, it was lost leader though. They get you in for the Beatle thing, and you'd buy socks. And you know, when Target back in the day, Target was a big record seller. Mm -hmm. Target oh. pr promotes maybe one record a week there. EJ Corvettes. How did they get their name? They were in the Korean War together. Eight I Jewish think. Korean yeah. veterans. Yep. EJ Corvettes. You know, yeah. I should have known. My uncle yeah, was yeah. a 92-year-old yeah. uh, resident of the Bronx. 92 years in the Bronx. <laughs> And he told me that tale. I should have known. Yeah. yeah. Well, now you mentioned a caper. That caper. Well, we used to caper off ourselves <laughs> to conventions. And as you can tell from Paul's uh, ready, easy vocal style, um, we were very good at mixing it up. Our editors were superb. So it was very easy for us to let the magazine sell itself, to make friends with the people in power and give them the magazine. We didn't have to go, oh, are we great? Oh, look at this. Oh, this is the brand new five-star version. No, they would actually get interested in the articles. And then, of course, their publicity people said, oh, my God, have you read this thing? We got to get our guy in there. And the artists themselves came to Musician Magazine through the record people. They would well, say, I want to be a musician as well as Rolling That was Stone. how the game was played. Yeah. You had access. PR was a big industry unto yeah. itself. Um, you know, I think it's important to talk about the lay of the land then because, of course, we were between two worlds. There were two types of magazines that we had to compete against. There was the in instrument-specific, mm. the special interest That's magazine, right. which at the early times, but luckily, was just guitar player. Yeah. And keyboard, keyboard yeah, right. um, and maybe a drum magazine, modern drummer, maybe right, modern drum. Yeah, yeah. On the other end, we had Rolling Stone to start. That was pretty much it. And well, Crawdaddy, which was going out of Crawdaddy business. Crawdaddy was pretty yeah, much they gone. Were gone. Circus was yeah. just, a, they had a bit of influence for a while yeah. because they were big. And they were Cream, but they were cream much faltered. lower uh, age. And then, so Rolling Stone was our number one point, and then Spin came in later. Later. Um, so we, ha and we were right in the middle. We didn't speak about how to play your instrument. No. We didn't teach you how to play an instrument a la the special interests with tablature and things you can play. And we were also better at interviews. We were beating Rolling Stone at oh, their yeah. own game. And I remember, uh, what was it, Kent Brownridge? Yeah. The story was Kent was that they were, the word got back that they were upset that we were getting certain first interviews That's before right. them because the artists themselves dug our book. That's they right. dug the art magazine. Yeah. They want to be an art magazine. So I always believe, from what I could tell from my perspective, that the artists did a lot of work for us as well, saying, I want to be in music. And they would tell the publicity people, exactly. too. So Donna, and my what's manager, her name, would call us up. And my manager, get me in musician. Yeah. I yeah. need to be in musician. That's yeah. the smart book. Yeah. 
But the aber- you know, the obviously the irony of our magazine was we were a rock and roll magazine. Well, actually, you can tell the, the history of it because it's fascinating. So from jazz to, to right. rock and general music. Yeah, as, as far as the history goes, we started as a music education magazine for school music programs because they were so dominated by John Philip Sousa marching bands, and they uh, the people at ARP synthesizers had wanted to get jazz and synthesizers going right. in more modern programs. They were the ones that actually came to me at a trade show and say, why don't you start a student version of this little magazine I was working for from Boston called right. Musician's Guide, right. a little TV guide-sized magazine that was a how-to magazine. Mm-hmm. And that's when Sam and I got the courage to start this as a as an education magazine and for music, music programs. And music educators is still a very yeah. big audience. Well, even then, in 76, it was booming. So much money washing around also, before they slashed all the money from the programs. Also, the, I'm going to comment because i got a funny story. Also, the instrumentation at that time was, it, it, in the schools for educators, it wasn't electric guitars. It was... Horns, oh, yeah. right? Lots organ. of piano and organs, and, and the conventions yeah. that you mentioned—the biggest, yeah. of course, being NAM, the yeah. National Association of Music Merchants, as you said, the Plumbers Convention yeah. for Music. They were basically the horn guys. Oh, That's the first convention I went to was seventy-eight percent piano and organ and marching band, and twenty percent exactly. guitar. Exactly. So, and what drums. was fascinating during our time was that rock and roll started to become a more commercial possibility for other industries. The record industry was booming. The, in, the guitar industry, boom, exploded. Totally. Rock and roll, so it was, you know, and we were rock and roll guys. I always claim we were a rock and roll magazine, not even because of the subject that we covered. Okay, we just were just rock. We it were. was just the way yeah. we worked. It was well, interesting when you say that, because I realized <laughs> so much of the 80s and 90s music industry was based upon people buying it who really did not deserve to be playing guitars, drums, and all that. But they all heard the Beatles, they all said, I can do this. So that there were so many people who bought and spent money in that industry that really had no business buying all this equipment. They certainly weren't going to be- boomed. Right, they certainly weren't going to succeed. No. Dreaming, dreaming is a big part of it. It's huge. I mean, I put out after leaving- Like Corvettes, who buys a Corvette? After leaving Musician, I went on to publish something called The Musician's Atlas, which was a resource book. It was actually a, a, uh, an extension of what I started at Musician. And Paul, you never left Musician. I never left You've Musician. You've always been, you know, even when the up. magazine went out. <laughs> we, uh, we started, I, I found a partner, like you found your partner, and we had the courage to put out something called The Musician's Atlas, and it was a directory for independent artists. It was lists of qualified record people, radio people, retail at that time, with lawyers who will represent you, club owners who will book you. So we had about 15,000 contacts, and it took off. It, it, we, we, it was very nice. But it was, we realized that the people buying this, many of them said, oh my God, I've booked tours all over the place because of it. I've got my records, I got into the press. But many of them just bought it because it was something you had to have if you were going to be a commercial or successful It was a wannabe fuck, and, yeah. we, and I learned that from Billboard. I saw how Billboard took those trade, those, those specialty um, directories that they would do, charge big money to the industry for the list of every retailer. And here's a true story. Our, if you remember, Gordon, our, our retail department here in Gloucester was doing distribution on behalf of Billboard. They put That's Billboard right. in the stores. In the stores. So we uh, we got this direct, and we got a. Uh, and by the way, now it sells on newsstands. You see them on big newsstands. They've gone still, uh, actually, for the public. The yeah. editor became from People Magazine. <laughs> For, but let, I, we digress. Hey, musicians are people too, Paul. <laughs> we, we well, digress. record companies. We digress. Fun. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the head of that department got a letter of confirmation saying, uh, Musicland, the, the chain you were mentioning, yeah. the biggest chain in the country, Musicland, 33 Commercial Street, Jack Euster, President, 33 Commercial Street, Gloucester. 
because we district through this billboard distribution, it, that, that's what it was done. So I don't think we responded, or the director, the guy there in charge responded. The directory came out, and there in this $300 retail directory by Billboard, to contact Jack Euster, Musicland, 33 Commercial Street, Gloucester, Massachusetts. I love it. That's how good those directories were, but yeah. everyone in the business had to have one. You had to have these directories to be able to do business in the industry. Well, there was no internet. That was exactly. the internet. You so look I like up. to think I'm the last guy who figured it out, which yeah. is we packaged this information because all the bands were being told, oh, no, you've got to develop yourself. Yeah. You're not getting a five-record deal anymore. You've got to sell. We're, we're right. interested in you if you sell. Well, that's because they had so many losers where they would put the big money in Polygram and Eight percent of yeah. a major label's roster paid that's for the right. entire roster. And that was it. And they'd have incredible successes because each of the majors had one, two, or three mega artists that paid for everybody else. And you know what? The sin of it all wasn't so much that they they invested in artists who didn't succeed commercially. The sin of it all was that they paid themselves royally totally. to do it. And <laughs> their business model had to be like football, which is you got to pay the stars through the roof, mm -hmm. but you screw everybody else. Yeah. I tell you, so an unsigned line person I rode on a plane with the Denver Broncos lineman's wife, and he was an undrafted lineman on the practice squad. Mm -hmm. He never got that cast mm -hmm. title off him so that he never could get over 100000 And eventually he started for Washington, but they bought his old contract, so he was still getting nothing. Sure, sure. And that's the way they said, is we can't afford to pay sure. the second stringers and even the first stringers who weren't stars because we've got to give all that money to Elton John. I know I'm mixing my yeah, metaphors. Yeah, no, well, it seems yeah. like any industry that develops talent yeah, is that's always the way it is. Well, world. speaking of developed talent, we were sort of between a rock and a hard place, as you point out. We were musician, player, and listener was our little subtitle. Um, <laughs> you couldn't trademark just musician magazines, too right. generic. Right. So with the player and listener protected us. But we were between players and listeners. We were. And in fact, we would go to the record conventions. We watched the birth of CD. We heard that first CD uh, on the beach, at Miami Beach at mm. the Fontainebleau. Mm. But I remember going to the other conventions, the music instrument conventions. Sure. And of course they were huge in Anaheim, California. It was such an adventure. Um, just thousands of companies. How do you stick out? Boy, were we good at sticking out. <laughs> and all the other magazines, they they would sort of try to do what they'd always done. But we were kind of inventing a new kind of publicity. Mm. And First of all, we were all over the floor. We were always talking to people. And we were very good at sowing good ideas of cross promotions. And one of the promotions we got into, and this is where Paul just killed, was we decided to put on a series over 20 years of dealer concerts. <laughs> and we would go to the manufacturers and we would either say, we want your money or we want your product, like Electro Voice did the sound. So there was 10,000 bucks we didn't have to right. spend. Or we went to Ernie Ball Strings and said, gee, Eddie Van Halen is your uh, spokesperson and Steve Morse and Albert Lee yeah. want to bring them in and that's your contribution. Yeah. And um, then we'd have some a company like DoD Electronics would just give us money, mm -hmm. you know. And at that point, we were able to stitch these concerts together from let's go through it. We did um, well the first weather one, report. Oh yeah, first one. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yes, we. Yeah. My first experience at that convention at the NAM convention, I believe the biggest concert was Woody Herman. Uh, when we got there, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, was Woody Herman, was and it, and yet guitars were there. I mean, there were there were rockers were already starting to appear. Yeah. So. 
But our first show, it was in Chicago because Chicago, if I understand, was the home of NAMM, yeah. the beginning of NAMM at McCormick Place. Yeah. And the L.A. show was a very small show to start. To start. Then it took a change. Right. Role. So yeah. when I came in, I believe you had just done the Disneyland. It wasn't even at, you were at the Disneyland Hotel. Oh, I don't God. believe that it was at the convention center yeah. yet. Anyway, we did our first show in Chicago, and we decided we'd go indigenous to Chicago. And we brought in Albert Collins and the Icebreakers. Now, were, I just want to set the record straight. Our first concert was actually, um, okay. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, we sponsored it. What was it? Robin Ford, Ford. and the and Yellow Jackets yes. were still together. Right. And we responded, and no one came because it was too far away from the convention. I, again, there as one who was so yeah. deep involved, I don't consider that yeah. my history. That, no, we fine. didn't have a big yeah. part of yeah. that. No. We, we didn't play that yeah. big. But the next one, you're right. And the story yeah. that goes with that is just beyond belief. So yeah. I'll let you well, tell no, it. No, I'll, I'll just go how we got there so yeah. Albert Collins he's actually a Texas guitar player but you know it was Chicago we're in blues land yeah. so we got Albert Collins the Icebreakers and I still remember uh, Bruce Eaglauer who was uh, who's president still president and founder of Alligator Records a major blues label uh, was a friend of ours he supported our magazine throughout the years totally. as well and uh, we went to him and asked him for insight into a cheap opening act we, we had like $150 left we could pay <laughs> a band who, who can we get and he sends us a tape he goes, you know, he goes, he sends us a tape, and it's, um, and we're listening to it, and we're kind of going, what the huh? hell is this? Yeah, remember first, Chesley Milliken, he was the a manager. He was racetrack yeah. owner in yeah. Texas. Called us he up. He called us yeah. up, he followed it up, he yeah. sent this us this tape. tape. yeah. And uh, so we listened, we, we go, oh my God, we bring this band to NAM, and uh, I still have the ticket of this show. And you have the tape, too, I hope. I have the tape that it was sent, and yeah. it was, uh, and it, so the ticket read, Albert Collins and the Icebreakers, plus special guest, little Stevie Vaughan. Right. And I under think it, he was Ray, wasn't he? He didn't have the Ray, Stevie Ray Vaughan? Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Okay, little yes, Stevie Ray Vaughan, right. Little yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan, and under it, in parentheses, it says, brother of Jimmy Vaughn. Yes, that's no one had ever heard of him. No one had heard of Stevie And Jimmy Vaughn was in the fabulous Thunderbirds, exactly. who weren't huge, but at least Exactly, they, yeah. exactly. So that's how we pitched it. And obviously, we became geniuses overnight, because anyone who was in that ballroom of the Hyatt Hotel? Yes, it was. At the Hyatt Hotel could not believe what they were watching. This guy, who is this who is this guy? Now, I'll pick up the story and say Please. one of the funniest things that we'll ever remember <laughs> is that Stevie Ray went on first, and he came off the stage. He was unbelievable, as you say. Right. And um, he goes back into the dressing room, and he had had kind of an eye for one of the roadies' girlfriends. And I remember the icebreakers were actually starting. They warm up like James Brown. You know, they do exactly. three songs. The instrumental. Well, Stevie Ray's in there, and he locks the door to the dressing room with the girl. Right. Albert's guitar was in the dressing room. Let me let me just add a quick color. Albert had been at the bar all day, so we're now trying to get Albert into the ballroom That's to right. play the show. So, but as you say, yeah. the band's instrumental openings about ten They're minutes. They're on stage, da, da, you know, comping. We're walking da, da, da. Albert around so the hallway. We go, come on, time to go on. Knocking on the door, Stevie, we need the guitar. He says, I will not go on without that guitar. That says guitar. Albert, that's my guitar. Yeah. And so we can't get the door open. Stevie's not answering. We don't know what's going on. The union guy is there. He's got the key. He says, 
that's not my thing. I'm over here. I can't open the door. I'll get in huge trouble. <laughs> we're freaking out. They can't find the one who is allowed to go in that zone. But I remember we were so frustrated. And I thought he said, so you're telling me if I grab that key and just pulled it off your thing, because it had one of those long uh, chain extender yeah, things, yeah. that that, as long as you're standing on the other side of that uh, portico, that's okay. And he goes, yes, that's right. So we did it. And we opened the door. And as we opened the door, we're going in there, and the girl is button herself back together. Steve is zipping up. And at some point, they, the other Brody, thank God, not the boyfriend, he went and grabbed the guitar, gave it to Albert, threw him up there. Albert got on stage. Yeah, Stevie Ray says, cool. turns to us, or I don't know if you were there, but I was there. He says, come on in. And he lights up a joint, passes it around, and there were just two or three people in there, but Smoked a joint with Stevie Ray Vaughan. Nice. What is the history? Well, I'm walking Albert trying to keep him straight. Yeah, that's right, because you weren't, yeah, you had gone back there. Anyway, we, we, it certainly planted our flag. Yeah. So, we, it planted our flag also because it planted his flag, because Stevie Ray Vaughan was heard that night by one of the writers for Rolling Stone magazine. They went to the editor. They said, you cannot believe this guy. You will never hear anything like this. He was like Hendrix who could sing better. And at, uh, so three nights later, Rolling Stone has a party for the advertisers. And there's Stevie Ray Vaughan as the opening act. Yeah, but what better president? They followed yeah, they musician. They followed musician. And then a month later, he's on the cover of Rolling Stone. And he has no record deal at that point. He signs with Epic after that cover. The rest is history. He goes on to be a historic. He was actually signed, but no record had been No released. record. Okay, fine. And uh, yeah. at that point. He, uh, he, the old, when we got him, he had just come back doing the Bowie Let's Dance sessions. He was a session. That's right. He, right. he, he had been player, on the, those records, that record. Which is, you know, like Jimmy Page. You can't yeah. believe how many records yeah. guys like Jimmy Page are on. But did we record. have a, st were we a stepping stone in his step to become instantly famous? I'd say yes. Yeah. Because they certainly yeah. wouldn't have heard him if we hadn't had our party you know, and they wouldn't have put him on the cover. We, we were very fortunate. You know, baby bands, developing bands, if you get into an artist early and they break, you're a genius. Yeah, oh, totally. And that's even oh, the record guy. Yeah. I signed this band. They went huge. I'm yeah. a genius. Yeah. You, you, you know. And we were very fortunate because the baby bands that were growing up with musician were The Clash, That's right. U2, The Talking Heads. Yeah. These were the young U2 band. loved us. U2, when they wanted to talk, they would call up Bill Flanagan, our yeah, editor. Yeah, he was the fifth Beatle on that one. He, um, wrote, a, he wrote a book where he went on tour yeah. with no, them. He's, he, he's, he was very close with I them. still have Bono's autograph in my top drawer. Bono. Sorry. Or do you have Sonny Bono's autograph? <laughs> but I, um, his autograph is, is like a lot of them. It's just a squiggle of, you know, in a circle. It's just like, as if you squashed a spider. I went to, uh, I mentioned Sonny Bono, but we went to, like, we used to go out to L.A. to do business, and I was with some of our, uh, um, uh, some of the other guys who had been with us for a very long time and were one of the original people like Gary Krasner and right. Ross Garnick and I was out in LA and we went to Sonny Bono's Steakhouse and Sonny Bono was at the you know was working there he was, yeah. I, he was probably just the maitre d' and the host, but I swear that I saw him cleaning the salad bar. That's what I keep saying, that my last vision of Sonny Bono <laughs> is cleaning the salad bar. He's probably got a bunch of lookalikes. Yeah. <laughs> was no, that before or after you went to the party with the uh, naked uh, Hollywood starlet oh, swimming yeah, in the Gordon. champagne? And the, they told me that they had gone, because I left early. <laughs> and then they, I went back to Boston. I said, oh, my God, we went to this party. And it was just... Well, that was the other convention that we used to do. That's that right. That was the record convention. Right. convention. And, of course, I was like, no. <laughs> the record labels have been fortunate at these conventions to impress the retailers. So they bring in the biggest of acts That's to right. play and all those things. So I got a picture of me in the Bee Gees. Well, that party was, I believe, Ron Goldstein, who was president of Island Records at the time. It was at his house in the Hollywood Hills. I went with Gary Krasner. We always, 
made up a lot of it so that we could entice Gordon. You know, <laughs> yeah, and then torture me, yeah. Exactly. Oh, but, it was so but I do remember the reason for the party. The reason, fascinating enough, the reason for the party was that they were celebrating the supposed upcoming release of a James Brown record on Island Records with Sly and Robbie, the oh, reggae yeah, guys, as yeah. his backing. Yeah. which would have been phenomenal because they had that same success with Joe Cocker. They made a record called Sheffield Steel, and, and that was it. And on the couch at that party were four young lads, the, another new signing of Island Records, and it was U2, and they were about 18 years old. That's 18, 19 years, just sitting there yeah. looking at everything, not saying anything, knowing no one, everyone ignoring them. And that is a true part of wow. that party at the Hollywood Hills. And they were there Steve. just sitting there. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Bono was there too. Bono was but there. But Bono was not. I think he was known as David. No, no, it was <laughs> <laughs> he was so young. Yeah. Well, what were some of your other favorite concerts we did? I love the uh, the uh, Eddie Van Halen and Steve Morse. He was the guy in Kansas, yeah. and he'd been in the Dixie Dregs. And then Clapton's other guitarist, who was named Albert Lee, was actually the fastest of all of them. But he didn't have the uh, the name recognition. He was UK. Yeah. He was in a band called Fair Head, right. Hands, and Feet. There Remember you those go. guys? Yeah. I uh, it was kind of a country rock thing. Yeah. And uh, anyway, yes, no, that was the biggest. Um, I never took that We one. had to do two shows because I, we had too many people who no wanted question. to come in. And, and I, I give everyone the credit. I don't take any credit for that. That was, that was Ernie Balls. Inside, coming, yeah, and it was an inside was job. A little and, bit of good luck. Too. And we even did a, sto- a concert, we did a cover story when they did that concert. So that was the first time we ever kind of mushed it all together. That's right. So I wasn't quite as smitten by that experience, yeah. although I will give it to well, were angry that, that we didn't do what they asked, you know, that they didn't it was write a bad, the story to make it, it was suck a bad, up. It yeah. was a bad deal. Yeah. Um, and we shouldn't have ever even talked about editorial. But I do remember when the president of the Yamaha is coming up to you and saying, can I get some extra tickets to your show? I'm going, best promotion. That was the trick. Yeah. All the, all the um, sponsors, we gave each sponsor a thousand tickets. A thousand tickets. The room oh, held yeah. seven hundred people. <laughs> There's four thousand tickets floating <laughs> around yeah. the show. And when people would come up to the booth, are you a dealer? If you're not a dealer, I can't give you yeah, the tickets because right. oh sign my god, how up. do I get to see? Yeah. How do I go to the yeah. show? I'm sorry, you have to sign me up. We'd sign them up. They'd cancel this first issue. We'd send them. They'd go, I don't oh, want yeah. this. I don't oh, want yeah. this magazine. It's like the record club. You get the first one. <laughs> right. I don't yeah. want this magazine. Yeah. But they'd have to cut, sign up for dealership to, to get tickets. Well, the part of that concert that you weren't involved in, I've told you this, but during the setup time, Sterling Ball was walking around with Eddie, and I was walking around with them, and we went to Eddie's room, and there was a pregnant Valerie Bertinelli. Well, you and were the she star was, with Yeah, she was so <laughs> angry at Eddie because he had a little cup of wine in his hand, and he had red wine, and she was, if I can't drink, you can't. And she whacked him. And I remember, like, you know, we were sort of totally embarrassed, and she, like, was pretending we weren't even there. I didn't want to say, hey, this is gonna how you're gonna look later on when you do those fat ads for the uh, uh, well, you know thirty ten weight loss. Like. They were identical. Very, they were really, they really married each other because I think they, they looked had like the each same other, hair. You know? yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the other things Paul did because Paul did uh, two or three of the greatest promotions <laughs> I could ever know. One of them we did it at a music, the instrument convention NAM and the record convention NARM. And Paul figured out, you know, those room keys that you have to go to your room. They all have the little holes in them, right? Well, Paul calls up the hotel and he said, well, we want to save you some money. So instead of spending $300 of your own money to print those things up with your Hyatt logo on them, how about we print them up and we'll put our logo on them and we'll give you a two-month supply. And they said, great. 
So now flash forward to the convention, and it was just some nice guy, and Paula Sweet talked to him or her, and uh, you know they had never gone to the top guy. Would have said we could sell this for ten grand. So we go to the convention, and here's all our competition checking in, and they hand them a key with our logo, and which which one was first, the number one with the bullet or the one with the? I think number one with the bullet was. So we did the record convention first, and where the bullet, where the holes were, there was a gun. Number one with the bullet, musician, and there was a gun and the bullet holes all over it. But when we went to the other convention, they were vastly huge, bigger numbers of people. There were like. 10, 20,000 people just get finished. So suddenly there's like 20,000 of these musician magazine cards. I remember when our competition was so angry, the guy goes, I want a blank room key, please. And they were going, well, we don't have them. And he was like, I'm going to check out. And I think they they create, they found an old blank, medium one up. But I remember that was such a great idea that the convention bureau themselves stole the idea. So the next year we came back to do they said, sorry, the NAM convention people are doing it this yeah, year. Yeah. So now it's like NAM number one with the bullet. <laughs> they stole every idea we had. They said, that's the best form of flattery we could have. We're stealing your idea. You can't do it. They all talked with the Midwestern. <laughs> the other great thing we did was we went to a winery. And these are all false ideas. And we went to a winery and we bought cases of wine. And if you were, and then he had gone to the record companies and he'd gotten them to pay for a postering program in the record stores. So if you were um, Elvis Costello, there was an Elvis Costello, and they had a really arty photo taken in black and white. And these beautiful posters were made that they, the record companies, shipped into the music stores, into the record stores. So we'd go out in the world to see our logo and the record stores. Well, Paul then thought to shrink down and make a set of labels and we printed up uh, cases of wine cases of wine and we bought the wine wholesale and we just put the record labels <laughs> right over it and if you were the person who uh, Sold a, if we sold the ad to like Joe Blow the, the you yeah, know if you were Lisa yeah. then it would be you get a pair in a beautiful wood box a white and a red but if you were the president of Yamaha or Roland or Fender you got a case and the best thing is that people would tell me later on. 20 years later, I still have that wine at home on my shelf. Because they go, what am I going to drink it for? I can buy wine anywhere, but I can't get musician wine with Jimi Hendrix on the front of it. Well, if there was any brilliance to that, it was we we hoped for that because the wine wasn't that good. (laughs) And yet, we also did a thing where we created six packs of beer. It was a summer program. And Record execs in particular would never, they didn't want to hear any statistics. You could never say 38% of our people buy new stereos every year. They, and to slip by info. So we designed this summer thing, a Frisbee, uh, suntan lotion, but mainly a six pack of Bud. And we put labels over the Bud that had, you know, instead of, it had endorsements from record dealers, from musicians, from manufacturers, from manufacturers yeah. even from record company execs yeah. themselves. Yeah. And it was brilliant because they were going like, you got under my defense. They'd be shaking their head. We see them at a shot. It's like, I can't believe you got me to read that. And so when that worked so well, we decided instead of trying to get lunches with them, we would cater lunch. And that the menu would be 
the statistics <laughs> in the thing. And it was like, so that the, the food was brought to their desk, just New York and No, you have to, this was lunch catered at their desk. At their desk. So <laughs> when the lunch was brought in by the caterer, they didn't, there was no way they could say no. They had so, to order. They had to pre-order. They it had was, to pre-order. And it was like yeah. duck concert. Yeah, it was really it was good hilarious. stuff. And the menus all had our own propaganda on it. And so by the time the food came in, they were like, "Go, you know, all right." Well, there was a bomb me. scare at Atlantic Records that day, so they were on the street. They didn't get served at lunch till four o'clock in the afternoon, and we had a flat tire in LA. We served all the labels on the East Coast and the West Coast simultaneously Simultane, oh. through two different caterers. Yeah. But they must have been hungry when that came, so they yeah. were paying attention. But I do remember that one specifically, uh, most specifically, uh, one or two people from the Reagan Street yeah. was going, you got, that was fantastic. Yeah. I'm eating a th I'm eating my lunch, I'm reading your, your new, oh, and the new issue. Oh, the new you issue, brand new issue. Yeah, copy yeah. before the show. Yeah. So, it, and the, the um, promotion, I think we called it, the, the best business lunch you can have, the one you eat at your desk by yourself. By yourself. And yeah. that was the hook. Yeah. You don't have to meet you with us. You don't have to listen to us or see Gordo or hear him go, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. It really was a good yeah, look. It, it was, was a great thing. Yeah. You know, those were such good days, and I will go back all the way to something I was saying in the beginning. Is we had superb editors. Definitely. That it was so much easier to pitch something that you know you could give it to them. They'd read it and go, oh, my God rather than fluff. And a lot of our competition, they had lots of money, but they didn't have very good product. And you know what I'm saying? Like well, all those you know, tech magazines. Those tech you know, magazines are closer to take this conversation yeah. around. They're closer. They are what Billboard was. They were kind of pseudo-trades. That's right. And they talked about product. Yeah. And that's what the trades do. That's what they want. Consumer magazines yeah. do not. Now, what the end of Musician Magazine began when like nine competitors in the vertical instrumentation biz came along. In other words, guitar world instead of guitar player, uh, guitar for the practicing musician, guitar uh, player, guitar strummer, bass, guitar, bass player. Guitar for women. Guitar yeah. pra yeah. for the yeah. practicing musician. Yeah, yeah. guitar for women. Was, so that yeah. and each one, instead of a $5,000 color page, was saying, Hey, we'll give it to you for 500 and it's all guitar players. Right. And the guitar company's gone, well, musician, I'm not getting all guitar players. I know that. And so eventually they begin to peel back the edges. And Billboard, and thank goodness, didn't allow deals. So we could not break the ray card. But that was good because once you break it, you never get over that. Yeah. And at that yeah. point, we it stayed strong, but it became very tough. And suddenly, they're all going to the same uh, uh, newsstand people and music stores. Hey, carry us, carry us. You got them. So suddenly, they go, we're getting rid of all of you. Yeah. You know? I mean, the kings of those, which became Guitar World, really, yeah. because they, um, they went newsstand. And newsstand was a totally different game. Totally. You have to put 500,000 wow. copies out. That's a biz we're selling one-fifth of the product is considered good. Yeah. It's considered yeah. great. It's, you know, a lot of it was for position, but that's what they did. And they, yeah. so their numbers were big. They were audited. We used to tout our audit, but then they became audited and they were, so we lost they were much bigger. Because Billboard audits all its publications. So right. they insisted we get audited, which was great because once we could say not only do we have this quality, but we can prove we have 100,000 sold. I mean, interesting enough, this the relationship with Billboard that brought us great fame in a way, totally. we, you know, we were uh -huh. recognized. We were, Plus, they knew we weren't shutting the doors. We were know? ordained, yeah. really. Yes, we were Billboard. ordained. We were. Um, but ironically, at the end, they became our Achilles heel. They became our problem. And I was there at the end in New York, as you know, and it was 
they weren't the company to invest in the future of a consumer music. Well, they didn't understand what we were, right? They were the trade. Oh, you can just go on. Uh, yeah, I always thought the two the two prominent questions when we were at Billboard was, um, what are what do you do? You know, yeah. what is this magazine? Yeah. and what does Saxman do? <laughs> totally. And they did not understand. The Billboard just kept saying, as long as the thing was profitable, uh, then. That was yeah. it for them. They just totally did not get. Well, we were we were definitely the rock and roll guys. Oh, we'd go to billboard. record conventions with the Billboard people. They would just sit around. They never would walk the floor. They'd hang at the booth. They'd yeah. go, "I'm having lunch with so and so," and that was it for the day. And we would be talk, 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 getting everywhere, doing shows, handing out tickets, doing this. Here's the new issue. Here's the record. Here's you know. We were young, and you know, it was a lot of fun because we were you know we kind of like pirates and. It, it, you told me when I, you hired me, <laughs> because you paid me nothing, and I will quote my salary back then, it was $75 a week you paid me. Which was 75 more than I was getting. No, no, no. You actually <laughs> did the opposite. You said, but I only make 100 That's what you told me. 100 said, a week. I'm only right. making yeah. 100 so you get 75 That's great. I'm the owner. You're, you're getting yeah. $75 a week. Oh, so God. you paid me $75 a week. Um, what was the point of the story? Sorry. Oh, pirates and... Uh, I paid you in records. <laughs> no, no, oh, no, I'm sorry. You, what you told me was that money, money doesn't matter. It's not money that's yeah. important. It's creativity and chutzpah. That's what you said. Good for you, me. Yeah, you know, Garen, that would endeared me to you early on. Creativity and chutzpah is really what matters. Well, your predecessor had gone to the trade show with us, and then he came back from the trade show with a million leads to follow up and basically said, I'm going on vacation for two weeks. <laughs> and then he took another week, and I was so angry. We came back, and there was no, I mean, he well, wasn't even remembered where what he had to do. He and skipped the was, source, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, a this is a remind me of the world between Billboard and ours. Billboard used to have trade-outs with, uh, as many trades do, but they had trade-outs with hotels. And we stayed at the nicest hotels in Oh, remember? Hollywood. La Mondrian? La Mondrian. Because it was on that. And I came into it after a NAMM show, so we were five nights, yeah. five days. You know, we looked like hell, and I looked like hell anyway <laughs> in those days. Yeah. So my sunglasses are on at night. I've got long hair. I come from that trade show. I go into Mondrian, and they go, oh, I'm so sorry. Your room's not ready, please. And they were, I know they were nice and service. It was everything, but this was weird. I just got this vibe that people think they know me here. And they said, oh, go to the bar, we'll have your room ready, and oh, how are you doing? And the guy on the phone goes like this, you know, waves to me. And after the guy goes, I'm so sorry. I, I, he said, I thought you were someone else. I said, i got to be honest. I think everybody thinks I'm someone else here today. He said, well, anyone who looks like you and is staying at the Mondrian must be somebody. Because I look like such crap. You look like a poet. And I realized yeah. it. He's like, a famous artist. And then I thought of it, like Spielberg. He looks like crap. You know, That's these guys right. look think like about crap. It. Yeah. Because there's dressing for success, and then there's... You can dress anywhere you want. Yes, exactly. And so I was thinking when you talked about yeah. Brian taking vacation, you know, he was a little ahead of his game there. <laughs> doing it. Well, I can just say that Musician Magazine and Paul and Gordon Baird and Gloucester all reached a nexus in 1993, which was really the end of the good times. I By mean, the way, can I just say we were a product so much of timing. All the industry was just booming, both yeah. in equipment and the kinds of music. Music was getting better, like you too. They weren't even around. I mean, the police out. were coming up when we were coming out. We became we became the outlet for really the most important for bands. the yes, yeah. and we also corporate rock was huge, and all the press was just covering the corporate rock. Yeah. You know, Foreigner yeah. and all those guys, and and we were trying to get into the new music. It 
was called, remember? And mm. even uh, Men at Work was mm. called new music then, remember? Mm. And then uh, uh, all that, Here Comes the Rain Again. Who's that? Uh, Diamond on the Rain. Oh, Eurythmics. Yeah, and yeah. what's her name? Uh, Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox. And they were considered new music. They weren't even they were. established yet, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, so much of that was us having the timing to be the pioneers to cover that. And I got to say that our editor, Sam Holsworth, being the head editor, sure. but Vic Garbarini, my brother Jock Baird, and Bill Flanagan. Yeah. And the record companies adored them. And uh, it was it was really wonderful time because we didn't have to be Donald I mean, we didn't have to be Donald Trump. We didn't have to say stuff we weren't. We could just go, here. And the people, and then eventually our reputation preceded us on the inside like that. Yeah, so. I mean, you know, in any marketing, you position yourself. And because our numbers weren't the largest all the time, Rolling Stone dwarfed yeah. us always. Yeah. Um, it, you know, we positioned ourselves in the quality. It was yes. really the quality uh, magazine. We were like a trade in a way, but we, a consumer trade. But we didn't way. market ourselves no. in that way. No, and that's didn't. what was interesting. The trade loved the magazine. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, my version of the story has always been that Billboard, of course, turned to their customers, record retail, and labels, but mostly labels, and said, what do you think of yeah. musician that's magazine? That's how we got bought, yeah. And they loved it. So the irony was that we didn't have a big audience, but the people who read it, and they that's do right. say, you could put out a magazine in the old days, you could put out a magazine that had 100 readers, but if those 100 readers right. were the top executives of yeah. the world, or musicians, because I always remember we get letters from Sting, we'd get letters from Paul McCartney, we got the call from Michael Jackson to say I want to do an interview. I still have a, I still have the letter from uh, Santana that says anyone, any magazine that puts John Coltrane on the cover, I will subscribe to for life. <laughs> for life from Santana. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So you know we're in Gloucester and we're getting letters from Santana and yeah. you know this is like a it was dream. pretty exciting. It's a dream yeah. come true. Of really. course, in New York they were doing more than that. They were going. Bob Dylan was hanging around with of Bill course, and different worlds. These but things, again, but we were more the do it thing. We produced the magazine in Gloucester. All the star bleeping was done. We distributed uh, the magazine from New York, and we weren't. Really and we promoted the magazine yeah. from Gloucester. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what really killed the magazine was a too much competition, uh, b the industry changed so much they consolidated. <clears throat> there weren't as many new products coming out that needed advertising. And also, there were, the world changed. Suddenly, MTV. Suddenly, you didn't have to read anymore. All of a sudden, it just yeah. there were too many. A spin came along too. And no, that was spin had been spin had been around for a while. Then. No, but I'm saying it had been around enough. Well, that the big got, big numbers. We, we would have had to. Away. We would have had to. Um, Pack, market ourselves differently. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of, because I was yeah. there in the last few years before I went to National That's and right. just went to, and died, um, you know, we we're, and even the artists, I mean, we were forced to put, you know, Hootie and the Blowfish were the yeah. biggest band. Yeah. They weren't the most interesting band to no. talk to, and we got to put them on the cover if you well, want to sell magazines. Remember, they actually declared no more personalities on your cover. See, by the end. No, 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 you're wrong. Not no more personalities, no more musicians. I got a oh. note from Billboard oh. telling me you can no longer put musicians on the cover of Musician Magazine. It's just equipment, I think. I resigned soon after yeah. that and uh, they took See, because by then it had been taken over by a bean counter yeah. and we'd been thrown into a division. I was gone by then. It, the magazine was gone. It had moved to New York and then they said we're moving you to Nashville to be under the auspices of the publisher of Amusement Business Magazine, which was a carnival, carnival. Yeah. trade magazine. Yeah. And so like, this guy who knew nothing, he's the one that said, oh, only equipment and important people. Well, if it wasn't musicians on the cover, who was supposed to be on there? It was Nixon? No, they weren't wanted it to be like like billboard you know editorial drill. Oh, okay yeah, yeah, all right yeah. well what an amazing free-ranging discussion yeah and i figure when you get to an you. hour i guess uh, you know we probably filled up the glass here i would think so but i would love to consider getting you back sure, and you might consider sure. see if you ever want to do a show like this of your own 
Fun. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. It's always fun to talk to you, man. So, Paul Saxman, and thank you so much, Jim Capillo, our engineer and fearless leader, producer, and director. And we will talk to you next time on Godot's Podcast. Let's cast some more, man. <laughs>